1: The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, CRTV on Westwood One Podcast Network. It is a new week, June 18th, and I hope you all had a great Father's Day weekend. I know I enjoyed some fun in the sun, though it was kind of hot. You know, summer's finally catching up with us here. Uh, But obviously, what's heating up even more  … … is the immorality in this country, the immorality in our media, the immorality in our body politic, in our cultural institutions. Now, there's been a lot of abuse of the Bible recently in order to justify progressive left-wing policies that <clears throat> result in outcomes that they claim to oppose. But the one Bible verse you need to understand for today – and you know, at some point I need to break this down and just the bastardization of the Bible with, with open borders – But Zechariah eight nineteen, God commands us to love truth and peace. You know, peace, compassion, love, harmony. That's the yearning of all men. But you need truth before you have peace, right? Because you know, if I say, hey, you know, um, why don't you go over to Gaza and give some presents to Hamas? Well, I I have to know the truth beforehand. Of what that is, because otherwise it will it will result in the opposite of peace. Do Do you support separating families? Oh no no no! I, I don't support no no no. It amazes me that we have an entire body politic, you know, focused. On the needs of foreign nationals, on the needs of the drug cartels, on the very policies that are responsible for what is likely more than 200,000 illicit drug deaths from Mexican drug cartels prompted by DACA, by the UACs, the sanctuary cities. Nothing, nothing that happens, no amount of Americans killed will spawn, induce Congress to act on this issue. But by golly, if the media concocts something that's always been done – in a limited basis, when we have no choice, when we're not doing anything, we're not bothering anyone, we're not going down to Mexico, we're not going down to Honduras, we're trying to protect our own sovereignty, and we get accused of dividing families. You now, I got a lot of positive reaction from Friday's show. And I really appreciate the emails because this is what keeps me going. And you know, among them, I got several responses from both victims or families of those who had someone murdered by a domestic American criminal. Because we discussed the perverted morality with the general cr- criminal justice system in America, and this pursuit of jailbreak, deincarceration, and then also the perverted agenda on on, on border control and illegal immigration. So you know, I got emails or messages on on social media from two individuals who lost children from illegal aliens. So, you know, look, I'm not looking for this, but if you want to reach out for me to me and you want to come on the show, dhorowitz at crtv.com, tweet me at Conservative. I'd love to have you on because evidently if you don't have a story, data and truth don't matter. And that's the thing. You could have a policy that is 99% harmful But they'll focus on the one, oh, but this kid would get in, and then that that drives everything. That's what liberals do. With abortion, it's all about the mother's life in danger and rape. With crime, it's all about the 10 people they could find that were over-sentenced and not the 100,000 people who are under-sentenced or not sentenced at all and all the loopholes that grow. And by the way, there was another Supreme Court decision that came out today. It's very minor, but it's just part of this broad trend of giving more avenues to – <clears throat> criminal defense attorneys to you know litigate their way out of out of jail time, out of sentencing. And when it comes to immigration, it's all going to be about that one kid, that toddler, and nothing about all those teen- teenagers that came in and became j- drug members. I mean, what's amazing is what should be a national discussion, what should be an emergency to spawn action and we're going to talk about this with our guest, a very special guest Jessica Vaughn, who's going to come on in a few minutes. This is from Fox News, you know, I reported on data given to Steve King and he gave to me from USCIS on the number of self-reported criminal aliens that got daca status. Well, now it turns out USCIS published more data even on non-self-reported Nearly This is from Fox News. Nearly 60,000 immigrants with arrest records, including 10 accused of murder, murder, have been allowed to stay in the country under DACA. 59,786 DACA recipients have been arrested while in the U.S. Um, another 7,814 were arrested after their request was approved. And... Um, Let's see what we got here. Of the 53,000 or so recipients with a prior arrest, more than 4,500 had been arrested on allegations of assault or battery. 830 arrests were related to sex crimes, including rape, sexual abuse, or indecent exposure. 95 arrests were made on warrants for kidnapping and human trafficking, and 10 for murder. And then also 4,600 were accused of drug-related crimes. Not surprising. That's where your drug crisis is, as we spoke about last week. So I have, and I'll link to this in the show notes. My article out for this morning that you must read: the immorality of the open borders left. If you didn't hear Friday's podcast, and even if you did, I have I document the full incontrovertible history, um, full incontrovertible history of. The way DACA incentivized these the human trafficking, the drug smuggling, the gangs, all these people coming over, mixed with sanctuary cities, all the data we spoke about, and there's tons of hyperlinks. So, you know, often if you click on the links, it will take you to previous pieces I wrote with even more information. So this is the most up-to-date piece I have on immigration. I'll link to it in show notes. You'll definitely want to see it. But this is the moral divide we have in this country, and it's engulfing a lot of conservatives. You know what's amazing? No Republican that I know of criticized Israel when they defended their border against the Hamas invasion recently. The left went crazy, obviously, but no no Republican did. They all understood the morality of that, and they understood that, look, most of them were Hamas people. But you are going to have some so-called kids and some other civilians killed because there's nothing they can do because we can only do what's just we can't do fully good only god could do that in this world but if you worry about the 2% you know every good policy has an ancillary detriment every bad policy has an ancillary benefit but you can't look at the ancillary you got to look at the policy and then the mutual exclusivity of the policies and the best we can do just like Israel to deter that behavior immediately rather than let it Faster and then more people are going to get killed. We have to shut down the border completely. And part of the problem here is that the Trump administration is a victim of what is going to be the title of this podcast. There's no such thing as lukewarm hell, particularly on immigration. It's one of the Daniel Truisms of politics. There's no such thing as lukewarm hell. Once you go up against the political class and the media – with a certain policy, you gotta follow through with it and do it all the way. Otherwise, you're gonna get this half-baked nonsense where you're gonna get the worst outcome. The problem is the administration, and again, I'm not I'm not bashing them, they're completely right to do this. But They're they're agreeing to the premise that they have to entertain every asylum request and that they have to – every kid who comes over, they have to give him status and let him go. But then they're like, oh my gosh, we have a problem now, so we have to deter the behavior, so let's prosecute the parents. And again, I don't have a problem with that. But the problem is that then you have this outcome. There's, oh, you're dividing the families when really they should just deny entry to everyone and announce – have a massive media campaign in Central America that we are no longer entertaining any UAC or asylum requests. Nobody could ever cross our border and gain status. That will shut down immediately the drug smuggling and human smuggling operation, the entire economy and downstream effect that it creates. Just like if we had a policy of having you know charitable organizations dr- stopping their cars on I-95 to give out food, and all the chain reaction of the car wreck that that's going to create, the answer to there is to categorically stop it. If you have a request, it must be made in a controlled environment, in a safe environment, in a U.S. embassy, in, in your home country. That is it. Trump has the power to do that. Trump has the power to deny entry to anyone, even legal immigration, family categories, you know, the chain migration categories – that's Section Two Twelve F. We'll talk about that with Je- Jessica Vaughn in a couple of minutes, as well as Article Two Powers. They're not asserting it, and it's driving me nuts. The idea needs to be to defend our sovereignty, not so much to punish. I'm not worried about prosecuting. I don't want to clog up our system with a bunch of foreign nationals. You know, I have no, I have no desire to do that. But this is the problem. they're they're, they're taking the wrong angle. It's the same thing legislatively. Trump is opposing amnesty, but now he's supporting the stupid bigger amnesty bill, not supporting the Goodlatte bill, which in itself is a compromise. He's not threatening a veto. He's not demanding sanctuary cities be dealt with in the budget bill, and that if it's not, he will veto it. He's getting bad advice, and it's resulting in the worst outcome, where you have a a little bit of an enforcement, but not—you don't get all of its benefits. So you don't deter all the behavior, so they're still coming. And then you have all oh, the separation of the family business. He's got to understand there's no such thing as lukewarm hell. We're going to discuss with Jessica Vaughn how to solve this problem. And let me tell you, folks—you know—I've quoted Jessica Vaughn many, many times on the show. Um, let me just tell you, part of the problem we have, as we started out, is that. In order to have peace, you need truth. And the problem in public policy is that there isn't much truth because there is a crisis not just of values but of intellect where people focus on issues that they literally don't know the ABCs of the subject matter. Um, I, I know of no other profession like that, and it's a big problem that I cannot find people to talk to on any given issue. But when it comes to immigration, there's a terrific organization many of you are aware of, Center for Immigration Studies, where they really know their stuff. They really delve into the truth um, in a very broad way and cover the immigration issue very comprehensively. And one of the people I look up to is Jessica Vaughn. She is the director of policy studies at Center for Immigration Studies, real heavy focus on the security side of things as it relates to immigration. And I've learned so much from her. Over the years, and it is an honor for the first time and hopefully not the last time to bring on Jessica Vaughn. Hey Jessica, how are you doing?
0: Hey, I'm doing well. Glad to be with you.
1: And you know, Jessica, as an added benefit, even though you live in Massachusetts, you are a native of Baltimore County.
0: Yes, indeed. Uh, Graduated from Towson High School.
1: There you go. I mean, it's unbelievable. Just a few miles from me, I, I just found that out recently. So, uh, uh, you know, just all, all the more excited to, to have you on the show. And, and again, I know I'll I've been try, try
0: not to call you Hun. <laughs> oh my God.
1: Oh, Charm City, Charm City. Yep, There you go. Um, and it's funny, you know, because because. They're both very similar, the policies in Baltimore, the policies in Massachusetts, and I want to get to sanctuary cities afterwards. Um, That's that's one of your big issues, but first to start off with the news of the day, and I think the news of the day is the news in the sense that – whatever the media says is the most important public policy issue in the country well that's what becomes the policy issue so the national emergency is that we are separating kids so i guess you know we evidently just had an agenda and we went down to honduras and well no <laughs> we didn't exactly do that um what is going on that is different than what has been going on the last 5 years and what do you think the administration is doing right and what could they improve on to get them out of this trap
0: oh my well um, what is going on is this continued influx of families and kids coming from Central America because they know from their friends and family's experience and from what the smugglers tell them that if they make it to the United States and they have a child with them, that in all likelihood they will be released into the United States and allowed to stay here for some indefinite period of time, usually under cover of an asylum application, which very few actually pursue, and an even fewer number who do pursue them actually qualify for. So it's basically an end run around our immigration controls. And um, it's, it, this influx has continued for over five years. And has and as long as people keep getting released, people are going to keep coming. There have been well over 300,000 people arrived this way. I, I think the number is probably closer to 400,000. Uh, they didn't count at the very beginning, so we don't know exactly. Mm. But there's no signs of it stopping. It stopped briefly, not even, start, it slowed down briefly after uh, Trump took office. But once people realized that the same rules really were still in place, it picked right back up again. And um, but so the Trump administration is between, you know, it really has two choices, either continue waving people in and operating this catch-and-release program and understanding that if we think there's a lot of people coming now imagine how many more are going to come as this goes on over time and not just from Central America but from all over the world or try to impose some consequences and the consequence that they've chosen is to actually prosecute people who are arriving illegally in between the point ports of entry because the law clearly allows for that and when you prosecute someone their kids are not going to go with them into the custody of the u.s marshals their kids are going to go into the custody of the office of refugee resettlement and put into what amount to group shelters or group homes and be cared for on um you know the, the the dime of U.S. taxpayers until their parents' immigration case is resolved, which can take a long time. But it it fundamentally is the choice of the parents to bring them here and take this dangerous journey paying criminal smuggling organizations and then, surprise, surprise, the parents get arrested now and their kids are being put into government custody. Um, Sometimes it's not even the parents who are bringing them, Sometimes uh, there are parents in Mexico and Central America who will will rent their kids to a smuggling organization to use as a deportation shield. There are some kids who are are trafficked and others who are being brought by people who are not their families. So it's not um, that they're you know, this is but but that's the reason that the Trump administration cannot detain the parents with the kids which is what they would like to do and which was done under the Obama administration is because in 2015 a judge named Dolly G oh boy <laughs> decided that yes decided that um, it th- that the terms of a settlement agreement from many years before that um, that said that children need to be re- need to be um, put in the least restrictive setting possible. And that is assumed to be not in detention. And so uh, what was different in 2015 is that the advocacy groups, including many of these very same advocacy groups who are now complaining about the Trump administration's policy, they, um, brought a, a lawsuit and said that the government was violating the terms of this settlement agreement and you know, needed to release kids, decided that even if the kids were being detained with the parents, that still was not okay, and that the government needed to release the kids, even if it wanted to keep the parents. So, so this, I think, really is a situation that is a, a result of these constant lawsuits from the advocacy groups who want to continue to catch and release policy and want to have an open borders policy and want to tie the hands of the government when it tries to enforce the law so i mean the ones who are complaining now if, if suddenly that uh... judges decision were overruled and it was determined that the government could keep the kids with their parents in uh... government custody in a um, an appropriate detention center these same advocacy groups are not going to like it any better because the kids are now detained with the parents they 're still going to yep. be complaining so they you know there 's no answer that 's going to satisfy the a c l u and the uh, open borders advocacy groups so the the administration is acting on behalf of the american people and saying look we've got to stop this we're not going to look the other way while this continues we're going to hold the find a way to hold the parents and the kids are going to go into professionally run shelters uh, until people get the idea that if you don't want to be separated from your kids don't come to the united states illegally or making a frivolous asylum application
1: so i know we we talked about this before offline and you know i've quoted you in some of my articles what, what's bothering me and, and the administration is obviously absolutely right but I think let, let me let me quote to you from secretary Nielsen this from the hill and and this is what, what's bothering me a little bit here where she basically says very emphatically you are not breaking the law by seeking asylum at a point of entry for those seeking asylum at a point of entry we have continued the policy from previous administrations and will only separate if the child is in danger my my problem, my fear is that they're being too nuanced. rather than saying we are shutting down our border to any migration, you must be processed in an embassy. We're saying, well, come to a point of entry. Now, the problem with that is that sounds nice, but as you well know, most of them are bogus asylum people. They're not asylum., um, uh, they don't fit the definition of asylum anyway. And we don't. They shouldn't be coming either way. And either way, it helps the drug cartels because they help smuggle them. And even even at the point of entry, you know, they have to traverse their territory. And by doing that, what 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 my fear is is that we're not we're not deterring it enough. I understand we're doing the prosecutions between point of entry, but it seems like they still have the sense that they could come in and get away with it. Why are we not just saying? send them to the embassies and refuse to open up our borders to them.
0: I agree with you. When um, DHS Secretary Nielsen made that statement while testifying before Congress, and and it seemed to me like – a mistake of almost Merkel-esque proportions (laughs) of that she was really saying, you know, and then the same kind of message is that we welcome your asylum claim as long as you come to the legal port of entry, which is not the right message to send. The message to send should be, don't think that you can take advantage of our asylum system. The only people who are qualified for political asylum are people who are being persecuted because of their race, religion, uh, national origin, or And you know other very tightly defined characteristics, and 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 I agree. I I I was have become worried that that was going to drive the traffic to the ports of entry, which are no better equipped to handle this influx than the border patrol is. And and this was right around the time that the caravan was at the border, and the result was that the. The people in the caravan got let in. Now, what kind of message does that yep. send to people? The message is: caravans work. Don't spend your money on a smuggler. You know, no coyote needed. Just come to the port of entry, and I think that really could come back to haunt us, and it's going to require a different response. We do not want people doing this. We want them to think twice about trying it at all. We want them to think that if they try it, they're going to get turned back, and it will turn out to be a massive waste of money, not to mention too dangerous. What they should have said is if you think that you qualify for political asylum, make an appointment at the U.S. Embassy in your country, and um and adjudicate these applications there and the result is going to be since most of them do not qualify they're going to get rejected and then the u.s taxpayer does not have the expense of processing them and removing them and and there will be people screaming that that's a violation of our international agreements i don't agree i don't think it is um and we avoid the problem and the spectacle of people arriving at the ports of entry. Um, and, and we can do this. It's been done in the past. It's what, the way things were done in the 1990s. And the, the other problem is that the administration has not yet found a way to process these cases quickly enough. Mm. It's still taking a, a minimum of four months. Is my understanding, Ooh. and that's a bare minimum for somebody that doesn't have a good lawyer or oh, doesn't, gosh. you know, know how to game the system. I, I don't
1: understand what what's stopping what you called a rocket docket, where you send adjudicators right at the border. All right, what's your deal? No, that's BS. You're just fleeing a kind of a crappy country, but it's not an individualized persecution. You're out of here. I mean, I, I just it, it, no, yeah. nothing I violates I think- our sovereignty.
0: I don't think there's anything that's stopping them from doing that except possibly the definition of credible fear. And we are seeing that, you know, that is potentially going to be changed at some point. I mean, Attorney General Sessions has sent these new guidelines down to uh, immigration judges, but they're not the ones who see them first. It's actually the asylum officers of USCIS Mm. who make the credible fear determination and the ones that you know, kind of give out the golden ticket for entry. Um, we cannot detain our way out of this situation yes. either. It's just—it's just not going to work. It's going to subject the administration to more yellow journalism. Yes, and it, it's going to subject the taxpayer to more billions more dollars to keep people in shelters. And it—it just—it's completely unnecessary when people are making frivolous asylum applications. I I think that we could um, adhere to a better standard for, you know, what is a potentially viable asylum claim. And these people just, you know, are are not making good claims. And I I think that the USCIS is hiding a little bit behind past practice and um, case law that could be challenged. And the, the important thing is to get a message to the potential migrants that you're going to get turned back. Like, that should be the immediate signal that they're trying to send. Yep. And, and I think that they, there are legal grounds to do it. Um, but when you ask why aren't they doing it, I think part of the reason is because um, Secretary Nielsen is uncomfortable, clearly uncomfortable, with the idea of turning away people who ask for asylum. Wow. She's not an immigration expert. She has surrounded herself with a small group of people who are not really immigration experts. They don't listen to the career people in the agencies that have been doing this for decades and know how things really work as opposed to how things, you know, are reported by the New York Times. And she just doesn't seem to have the stomach for the, these kinds of policies that would do the trick. And she does a nice job. She's a smart woman, um, is a fast learner, but I'd, I don't see the commitment to the agenda or the understanding of why we enforce the law. She talks a lot about the need to enforce the law and the need to keep our country safe, but there's not a lot about protecting Americans from the costs of, hosting you know all these asylum seekers or the cost to americans who you know have to compete with them for jobs and you know all the other reasons that we enforce our immigration laws yeah national security is the most important reason to do it but fundamentally you know most of these asylum seekers are not necessarily a threat to us as a country on the other hand if a you know 23 year old mother with a couple of kids from Guatemala, you know, a rural area, this out, then you know that a terrorist organization can figure out how to get their way into the country, also.
1: And and also, not to mention the fact that they're all paying drug cartels, they're all getting so much money from this. So it's inextricably linked to empowering them. They orchestrate this. You know, I've been told by border agents that. You know, let's say again. Let's say you have, for argument's sake, an innocuous caravan of bogus asylum claim claims, and uh, they'll come in, they'll shove them at the border agents, and then that's when they'll put in their high value targets. So I don't understand right. why.
0: Well, the border patrol sure. is distracted with these families with, and kids.
1: Ex- exactly. While they're distracted, and again, and again, even when they're not distracted, everyone, good and bad, and in between, they pay them so they get the revenue. So it certainly does fuel the drug crisis. And I'm not seeing any moral clarity of saying, look, you have drug cartels controlling this process. We will bypass it. We will make it that nobody could come here illegally. You know, for Trump to give a speech would be amazing if he would get up there and say, "I have a novel idea. We're actually going to end illegal immigration. The the days of coming here for any status. You know, we wanted to leave a certain loophole open for asylum, but the ship has sailed on that. We see a, yeah. a, a ten year history, even more, but certainly the last five years." of what it has done to this country and what it has done to the people that are coming over and people on the other side as well. And what I don't understand is – and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this part. I would imagine you are from the travel ban. Section 212F of the INA is one of the most plenary categorical delegations of power from Congress to the present. And he has the power when he deems it not not national security, national interest, which is much broader, any national interest – to shut down any form of immigration, it, he could shut down certainly you know, legal immigration, family categories, um, employment-based immigration. I don't see why that doesn't override asylum and UACs and all of this. The president can't deport anyone not pursuant to statute, but why, can, why is – the president is never forced to let anyone in that he doesn't want to let in. I'm not understanding right. why DOJ is not asserting that.
0: Uh, I probably because there, as I mentioned, the DHS would need to be their partner in this and may not be fully <laughs> cognizant of the reasons why it, it, that, you know, very fundamental change in perspective needs to, is needed. You know, they're used, you know, Kirsten Nielsen and her inner circle, they're people who are accustomed to managing issues, not changing the course of the ship. Mm. Um, I, you know, I think that that's what their goal was, was to manage things and solve problems, not you know, get back to a completely different way of viewing our sovereignty and the president's authority. Um, it, it, I, I just don't think that they are thinking about it that deeply, that they're just trying to figure out how to make the problem go away
1: and then ironically i like we said it i think they're getting themselves into more trouble that way um yes. i don't agree with the accusers they're wrong um but nonetheless it's just it, it's not even the way to solve the problem like you said it's it's i'm not trying to throw out you know statutes oh there's 212f here there's this that there's um obviously a statute they could self um deport they could voluntarily depart anytime so this whole business that we're uh you know um forcing them or Separating. I mean, we're not doing anything. It's it's their choice. They could voluntarily depart. Right. Um, I mean, isn't that true? They could always voluntarily depart.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. They could you know give up on it at any time and say I want to go home. And there would be a little bit of a delay while we get their travel documents in order. And that's another problem. <laughs> but um, but yeah, they can they can give it up any time. Um, you know, unfortunately, they're once they get into the immigration courts, though. They, you know, and, and they get their Know Your Rights presentation oh, from boy. some of these advocacy groups. They're, they're told that, you know, that that if they can just hang on a little while, they'll end up being here for years. And they know from friends and family who have come before them. Um, but, but, you know, as you may have seen in some of the reporting that's happening, you know, we have someone who covers the Central American press. What's starting to happen now is we're seeing more and more reports of, countries in Central America enforcing their own immigration laws and finding out that there are now people from Bangladesh, wow. from yep. the Congo, from Nigeria, from Sri Lanka, and all these other parts of the world who have figured out that they too can be an asylum seeker. And that's, you know, again, opening another vulnerability. The smugglers will bring anyone who pays the the fair, as you mentioned. They don't care who they bring across. Um, I have a a colleague who has done an exhaustive analysis of 19 smuggling cases that were prosecuted over a a recent period of time um, that were all done by smuggling organizations that specialize in bringing people from parts of the world that are associated with terrorism the so-called special yep. interest countries and SIAs. just looking at yes just looking at those um, he picked apart all of these cases and found examples where the prosecuted smuggler knew that they were bringing over someone associated with al shabaab for example and really, had, themselves had you know felt a little bit sketchy about bringing some of these people into the United States, and they think about, oh, you know, is this going to attract attention if like I bring in a smuggler? And they sort of think about it for a while and go, oh well, it's, <laughs>
1: I'll it's bring all it money. Anyway.
0: They pay, yeah,
1: it's just more so, money. It's a higher premium on the SIAs. they say, up to twenty-eight thousand rather than maybe ten thousand.
0: Yeah, yeah. And they, I mean, the smog- there are smuggling organizations that do specialize in different um parts of the world in, in serving, a, you know, clients from a specific part of the world. And they a lot of them tend to operate out of Ecuador because it's very easy to get to Ecuador from almost any other country that Ecuador does not require visas for people from most countries. Nope. So once they get into Ecuador, they, you know, know the address of the place to go where they, they can be taken on the next leg of their journey. And um, that's, I, I would not be at all surprised to see even greater increases of people. As long as we're allowing this, they're going to keep coming. And, and they're not probably not bringing kids with them because it's too long a journey and too expensive. But, um, you know, it's, it's open season for anyone trying to get in the United States right now by using that magic word of asylum. Yep.
1: Yeah, I mean, because it creates an entire environment and economy. I mean, the analogy I gave before I brought you on the show was, you know, if I say um, I'm so compassionate, I want to hand out food to poor people, and I go and stop my car on I-95 and um, start doing it, well, you're going to have a pile up. Uh, of of death and mayhem on the highway now because you're compassionate you you're, you're creating this entire chain of reaction and that's the problem with the, the drug cartels and everything and you know we've had people on the show we discussed Hezbollah um, Ecuador is a country where um, there's not much of a Arab diaspora there like you have in Venezuela and some other countries but on a statecraft level Iran has ties very closely to Ecuador it's one of these you know Marxist type of governments that's in charge there. Mm-hmm. And you know, next door you got in Venezuela where yeah. you got up to 2 million refugees now coming in. And if we basically tell people you come to the point of entry and we're still doing this, it's just in certain circumstances we're cracking down, they're going to come. And, and again, the more you have them coming, the more you have the cover for the SIAs, MS-13, the drugs and everything. And I'm just I'm, – I'm, I'm sitting here scratching my head. And I want to transition to sanctuary cities because it's the same thing. Why why is it when it comes to doing something for the American people, the most basic job of government – it's always, we can't do it. No, no, no. There's a reason. Our hands are tied, but the illegals could do anything they want. The foreign nationals could have a right to come here, but we don't have a right to secure a border. And and what I'm getting back to is if you l- read the Constitution, you know, obviously this is my expertise the courts and immigration, wrote a book on it. Um, there's settled case law that there's Article Two inherent executive authority to, be, you know, before they enter the country, you could deny entry to anyone. There's delegated authority, 212F. And it's not just a technicality. There's a philosophy behind it that even things that do offer more of a liberal assertion of a claim to come in like, like asylum, there's a limit to it. That ultimately there's a safety valve. Ultimately there's a circuit breaker that the president could just say, dude, we have a major problem here. All things equal individuals you want to bring in, but this is a problem. This is proven to be a problem with the drug crisis and the gangs and everything that the UAC has brought in. We are shutting this down. And and I feel like a lack of moral clarity on that is getting them into needless trouble.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Um, you know, as as someone smarter than me once said, um, you know that that our laws are not supposed to be a suicide pact, or our constitution is <laughs> not a suicide document. So yeah, that's why those safeguards are there, and they're not invoked all the time. But it is meant to be kind, of just a, a like a. a a wild card or trump card that the executive branch can play on behalf of national security because there are things that we cannot predict and that don't fit neatly in the other boxes of things that there are, you know, the, the drafters of laws thought of beforehand. And there's got to be a way to protect the country. You know, we don't have to jump off a, just keep walking off a cliff. Um, there's no question, um, but. You know, I, and, I, and I should add, and you know very well, the courts have, have played a big role in whittling down some of our ability to control these influxes and to to exercise this discretionary authority as well. And it's a one-way street. It's always possible to break the rules and make exceptions on behalf of non-citizens. But it's never easy to enforce a distinction between a U.S. citizen or yeah. citizenship or legal status even and someone who doesn't have it and who is not entitled to endless due process and all the protections of our Constitution or you know, m- much of anything really when it comes right down to it.
1: Yeah, I mean that—that's that, what's always so tough. Suddenly we can't do anything. So you know, like with sanctuary cities, suddenly I—I I, I mean, the the all too powerful federal government suddenly can't do anything when states say they, you know, screw you, we're not we're not doing anything, um, we're not cooperating with you. I want to go over your testimony, and I this is already a few months old, but people need to hear it um, before the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Immigration. On just the the role that sanctuary cities have played, the dismantling of 287G program, the cooperation between federal and state law enforcement, and the rise in drugs and MS-13, how it's constantly refueling them with new recruits, how they're able to operate undetected. Could you speak a little bit more about why we've suddenly seen this problem over the last five years?
0: Well, there most certainly is a nexus between the drug trade and immigration. Uh, The vast majority, something like 80 percent of all the illicit narcotics sold in this country come from across our border and not necessarily in the mail, but are brought across the border by the same cartel controlled smuggling organizations that are bringing people across. And they also rely on street gangs and criminal organizations of immigrants to carry out this trade at a a retail level as well, and sometimes, you know, uh, um, a wholesale level. They, you know, go first. To other non-citizens, whether they're the Dominican traffickers or other Mexican gangs or gangs like MS-13 that are largely made up of illegal aliens, um, because those are the people that they feel that they, they they feel most comfortable working for, other criminals from a similar culture. And so, there. If you look at the statistics that, um, that are available from the Department of Justice, you can see that people. Of drug smuggling and um, drug trafficking are very disproportionately non-citizens, and and that's yep. the reason why. And they often have multiple aliases, multiple identities. Uh, sometimes steal the identities of U.S. citizens, especially um, citizens of Puerto Rico, because their their breeder documents are not secure. So there, then. So these networks are already existing and operating, and the thing is, is the fact that so many of them are non-citizens would actually make them more vulnerable to law enforcement, yep. because that's something that they can that they can be taken into custody over violations of. Lots of them are here illegally or using yep. false documents.
1: You don't have to land a conviction, um,
0: right? Right. You can take them off the street just because they're here illegally. But then we, you know, the problem is. That too many jurisdictions have, you know, want to uh, interrupt the enforcement of immigration laws. And they have sold a lot of local politicians on this idea that the federal government is overzealous in enforcing immigration laws. And therefore, we need to have sanctuary policies to protect all these hardworking, harmless illegal aliens who are in the districts. So they impose. Restrictions on local law enforcement agencies, sanctuary policies that say that they cannot communicate or cooperate with ICE. So that if someone, if if a local beat cop arrests a drug dealer and opens up his wallet and finds um, maybe a fake green card or no, uh, you know, no driver's license because they're in the country illegally, or um, maybe a matricula consular, which is a consular. Um, uh, identification card issued by some of the fo- some foreign countries like Mexico and Guatemala to illegal aliens and they're staring them right in the face is all this evidence that they are this drug dealer is a non-citizen they are, still are not allowed to contact ICE they have you know they they process them the way they would process an american often a judge will let them out on bail and you know, even if ICE finds out about them through the fingerprint sharing through our national criminal justice databases, they can't get there in time to take them into custody, they and disappear. they go right back on the street. And guess what? They don't show up for their criminal <laughs> proceedings. They, you know, or if they get pulled over for driving without a license, they just don't show up for the summons, um, or you know, any number of things that they might find themselves in the crosshairs of law enforcement over that a U.S. citizen would, you know, have to be held accountable for, they simply ignore it. They're back on the streets dealing. If they need to, they'll get another identity or an alias, or they'll steal the identity of a U.S. citizen so that they can get a a driver's license and then a passport, and then they can fly in and out of the country at will, posing as a U.S. citizen, all because local law enforcement agencies are not allowed to talk to ICE, you know, uh, on this myth that, you know, ICE is, you know, trying to arrest grandmothers. That's how it's sold to the public. Or um, you, you, know,
1: know, that- I, you know, I, I want to touch on that point about ICE arrest because I just posted some, you know, relatively new data, or at least it was published newly at TRACA, University of Syracuse, um, which is just a clearinghouse of data. And, yeah, there's this phenomenon that The media is discovering basic law enforcement, just basic things that were in the country for years, even including Obama, especially for his first term. And then suddenly when Trump does it, even on a limited basis, it's like this novel thing. And I look at ICE ICE, uh, um, enforcement results, and among them you find apprehensions. So they plummeted in the final two years of Obama because he suspended – a lot of these programs, and it's gone up, you know, from a hundred thousand a year to maybe one hundred thirty-nine thousand in the first fiscal year of Trump, and then even if you look at the monthly numbers, they're less than half of what they were in FY 2010 and 2011 during Obama's first term before he suspended, interior enforcement. So, when I look at that massive drop, exactly coinciding. With the takeoff of the drug crisis, that era, 2013, 14, 15, 16. I mean, to me, it's all those people not being apprehended, many of them drug offenders, and many other people that we're now finding out, you know, statistics about DACA recipients. I mean, there's a lot of criminals among them. That's, that's gone by the wayside, and it looks like we haven't recovered from that.
0: Yeah, I, I do think there is a relation to the um the escalation of the opioid problem and the de escalation of immigration enforcement because of you know, we know that the people doing this trafficking are are aliens and when they're not facing enforcement they're back on the streets. And part of the reason that ICE has not completely recovered from Uh, The Obama administration policies is because partly because of the sanctuary policies, because now more jurisdictions simply don't cooperate with ICE, don't hold people for ICE, so ICE can't get these people into their hands to process them for deportation. The other reason is that formerly um, there were partnerships that were in place known as 287G programs that enable local officers to... um, basically have delegation of authority to act as an immigration enforcement officer, like an ICE officer. And they went, they go through rigorous training. The local jurisdiction pays the costs, And most of these uh, were um, jail systems like Harris County, which includes Houston, which is one of the, I think, top three uh, correction systems in the country. Um, they, they, There were 287G programs in Los Angeles County, San Bernardino, Riverside, places where there are huge numbers of illegal alien Mm -hmm. criminals. And the civil rights and immigration advocacy groups put so much pressure on local politicians to end these partnerships that were producing thousands and thousands of arrests for ICE and deportation cases for ICE without ICE having to do anything. It was really a force multiplier for ICE. Now, many of these the big ones have almost all been shut down with the exception of a few in Georgia that are still running. At one point in time, when 287G was at its peak, it was responsible for something like 20% of all ICE's criminal deportations. Mm that were being done by local officers, not by ICE. And imagine like one fifth of your productivity is local jurisdictions. Now, most of those are shut down. The 287 g programs that remain are almost all very small. And so that's, you know, ICE has to make up for it. And at the same time, ICE has to use, you know, six people to go out on the street to make fugitive arrests when formerly they would take somebody into custody in a jail. So it's made ICE very, very inefficient and made immigration enforcement much more costly. And so there's less of it being done, and, and all because of sanctuary policies and political pressure to distance from ICE. It, it's very damaging to public safety. There is, an, I, I think, a real traceable public safety cost to the end of these programs.
1: I mean I'm seeing – I'm just – I'm even shocked after following this for many years, the degree of how many crimes are committed. Just the Texas data from 2011 to 2017, on the number of criminals that they processed that were confirmed through fingerprints – have been illegal, you know, because they came into contact and were interdicted by federal authorities. You can imagine how many people came straight into Texas and were never interdicted and just went straight into Texas jails and were apprehended. And they're not even included in those numbers. Um, it's there about
0: fifty percent. One the Harris County officer told me one time that only half of the illegal aliens who were incarcerated in Harris County's jail system were actually illegal aliens that the government knew about. Whoa.
1: So, so you're telling me when they uh, wait? I don't, I don't have it in front of me here. I gotta get it here. What is it? Over like six hundred thirty thousand criminal offenses um, committed by these confirmed aliens that were processed by Texas law enforcement from 2011. I guess it was until this year, 2018. Um, mm-hmm. Let's say a seven-year period. I, I mean. You know there were almost seventy nine thousand drug charges, and again, this is likely, like you're saying, about half the people. A lot of the really bad dudes. um, You would imagine the professionals, those professionally smuggled, might never have been interdicted. Um, And you know, I, I look at back to your testimony a couple months ago. Something that really jolted me that I thought is just a good way of presenting this. How Cooperation on immigration, more than anything else, between state and federal law enforcement is a match made in heaven. Um, you wrote about just the what should be a great symbiotic relationship, and I'm just trying to find uh, find the quote here um, where, where you talk about basically how the federal government, the federal immigration agents, quote, have expertise and intelligence on cross-border drug trafficking and smuggling. Attaches. In uh, attaches in in foreign countries and relationships with foreign and international law enforcement agencies and extensive databases of foreign gang members and other criminals, including biometrics, including information on the movement of individuals across borders um, they're not limited. they have all that training and then on the on the other hand, local law enforcement, they're not trained in that, but what they do bring to the table is you know that they come into contact with them and when you right, sever that tie, that tie, it's a disaster guys
0: are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, because um, ICE doesn't patrol our streets, um, they're not sitting in as many jails anymore, seeing who's coming in, uh, who's picked up on the streets. But local law enforcement agencies do. They know who's in their community. They talk to people in the community. Um, they know what's. They, they know a lot of what's going on. Obviously, not everything. Um, and so, when you in, interrupt that communication, ICE doesn't know who are the, the people that they should be focusing on, who they could take off the streets. And with the, when the locals aren't talking to them, the locals may not realize that some guy they have in their custody that they picked up for drunken public is actually a gang member from El Salvador who was deported A couple times before, or even once, you know, prosecuted, did real-time, sent home, and now is back. So you you really lose effectiveness on both ends, both local and federal, if they're not sharing information.
1: You know, it just amazes me watching the news cycle that the entire problem – I mean, what you're talking about on the sanctuary part, forgetting forgetting about border enforcement, just on interior, is so existential – um, to our communities, to the drugs and the gangs that everyone recognizes. the media, The Washington Post has a whole series on MS13 in Maryland is big, obviously in Long Island. Um, what are you seeing in Massachusetts the last couple of years with drugs, gangs, criminal aliens? because uh, the courts didn't the courts declare Massachusetts a sanctuary state?
0: Uh, yes. The the Supreme Judicial Court of, of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts did what the legislature didn't dare do, <laughs> which <laughs> was to say that local cops and court officers uh, could not hold people for ICE at all. So you know when if somebody is granted bail they're gone if they're you know even if ICE wants them and has a detainer on them which is based on a biometric fingerprint match they ICE know even when ICE knows exactly who they are and what their history is they they won't hold them for them um and and uh, obviously Massachusetts is is in New England there's a city in Massachusetts by the name of Lawrence which has become a major regional opioid distribution hub. Mm. Um, and there's a very large um, Puerto Rican and Dominican population. There are a lot of il- people who are in the country illegally living there, and it's it um, has one of the most egregious sanctuary policies in the state. And this is where the opioid distribution hub is for all of New England. There have been reputable studies done by hospitals that have, you know, interview addicts. And, and they all say, we, you know, we got our stuff from Lawrence. And so, you know, what a coincidence that Lawrence <laughs> is a sanctuary city um, and that, you know, so many of the big busts that occur when the feds get involved occur in Lawrence. Uh, you know, there there was a case under the Obama administration where um, somebody fired a gun in an upstairs apartment, and it went through the floor and killed a woman who was lying below. And it turned out that, that the apartment where the gun was fired was a, like a stash house for opioid distribution, you know, that's where they would keep their stuff and measure it and uh, where the deal, street dealers would come. And... Um, The police arrested these two guys, um, but they couldn't keep them on this, like, what they claimed to be an accidental firearms firing. They couldn't—they didn't have enough on them to keep them in custody for opioids. ICE knew that they'd been deported before and tried to get custody of them, and they let them go
1: and that's the thing and and I, look I don't want to schlep you into this conversation I know you got to go soon um but you know these a lot of these same people they're they're weak on criminal justice in general this whole criminal justice reform deincarceration and and one of the things you know that I always tell people is that you know for every One person in jail that you think maybe is over-sentenced or shouldn't be there, it's so hard to land convictions, and that's the beauty of proper immigration enforcement that when you know, particularly with drugs, that at a primary level it's driven by foreign nationals by and large – it's so it's not that you know it's any more evil if they're doing it than an American's doing it, but in terms of redressability, it's very hard to land convictions or not like you said, not just convictions, but have enough probable cause to even pick them up to even hold them. Whereas if you're here illegally done, you're illegal, I got you and you're out of here.
0: It's immediate disruption of criminal activity to take these people off the streets. And not only that, it's really a lot of leverage that they can use on some of these lower level punks who are involved in gangs, for example, um, because, you know, they you know, if they're going to make a deal. An informant's going to make a deal with somebody. You know, the prosecutor, local prosecutor might be able to offer, you know, some a lighter sentence. Um, or, you know, some other small-time benefits. But if you get ICE involved, you might be able to get status in the country if you rat out the people, you know, a bunch of the people in the criminal conspiracy. And so they're much more interested in pleasing ICE than they are in pleasing the local prosecutor. But if you're not working with ICE, you're not going to get the benefit of that.
1: It's funny, because I actually remember when you testified at that committee, there was a sheriff from Colorado, I think brought in by... Uh, Congressman Ken Buck, and he made the case that often th- they'll get some low-level guy off the street, but because again he's an illegal, they're able to apprehend him. They're able to get the information and then find the stash house, like you were right. talking about, and then that's how you would bust up the networks.
0: Exactly, that's how you work your way up the criminal conspiracy is by you know infiltrating the organization. And it's a lot easier to do if ICE is involved than, and not only that, I mean, the the immigration authorities are so powerful and no one else has them, not the FBI. You know, an ICE agent can, you know, as long as they have reasonable facts that they can, reasonable suspicion or articulable facts that someone is not a citizen, they can question them. You can't do that if you're the FBI. Um, or you can do a knock and talk on the basis of suspected immigration violations and get into somebody's dwelling, and then you know be, begin to penetrate the criminal conspiracy, all because of the immigration authorities. And you know they just are not taken advantage of. Um, they've scared a lot of local police off doing this, but because immigration enforcement has become so politicized, there were so many years when the INS was, you know, like the Keystone Cops. And, you know, the reputation suffered that it's it's really been one of my crusades for the last 10 years to try to re-institutionalize this cooperation between ICE and local authorities to get everybody working, you know, together for public safety and making use of these tools that, that Congress has given ICE.
1: It's, it's just heartbreaking because, you know, we have a divided country. We have... You know, different views on the size and role of government. But, I mean, why can't we all agree that we have our own criminal problem? We have particularly our own problem that we're discussing nationally with our youth. Um, Why would you bring in other countries' criminals, and to the extent you have them, uh, hamper authorities from getting rid of them? I mean, it it just – I mean, th- Crime this is, is not it's a so... job
0: Americans won't do. <laughs> we don't uh, yeah, need I, <laughs> more we, criminals.
1: We got plenty of that. I mean, and that's the problem. It's not that it's any more evil when it's done um, right. by a foreign national. It's just that it's it's so needless. I mean, we, we wish we could stop everything, but you can't. But this, it's it's like what your um your colleague Mark Kerkorian always calls broken windows immigration policing. You just get them on immigration, and then that's how you clean up so much of, of, of the problems that are hard to get otherwise and this is what worked in generally in the 90s um, and onward to drop crime in America broken windows policing but here yeah. it's broken windows immigration and again I'm just I'm just reading the numbers I don't know if you got a chance to see it the the number of docker recipients that have been confirmed to have committed crimes and were arrested and were given wow. and renewed and had their status renewed anyway and again yeah. you see you know 4500 drug charges there Right, um,
0: it's not all like operating without a license. There were some murderers and others with very serious charges, uh, and and lots of drug charges. And um, you know, they were given the the uh, the amnesty and are now in line to uh, you know, if Congress passes something, to be put on a path to citizenship. But it's so clear that we did not. That the standards were not high enough to begin with for DACA that we should not be just converting their DACA status to a green card and citizenship.
1: And and yet that's that's the entire clamor. We need a DACA fix. We need a separating families fix. No, we need a sanctuary fix. We need a border fix. We need a magnet fix. We need to E-Verify. I just – I, I, t- to me, everything we're talking about today is a violation of the essence of the social compact—that you right. are responsible for Americans first and foremost—and we're not even having, you know, an equitable balancing test between the two. Um, yeah. You know, obviously, it should be weighted towards Americans, but it's like the other side of this doesn't even get out the causes. Of bringing in a number of young people. You know, it's not just toddlers in diapers, it's a lot of those that are prime recruiting age. As the Washington Post reported, that, um, you know, the bulk of or almost exclusively the problems they have in Montgomery, PG County, Maryland, the problems they have in Suffolk County. Long Island, are from that UAC population. And what I you know have today is you know from the Miami Herald, from the New York Times, Washington Post, El Paso Intelligence, stating very clearly that the UACs came in because of the promise of DACA.
0: Oh, yeah, that's undeniable. They may not have known what the program was called, but what they heard was amnesty for people who arrived as kids, you know, who came as kids. That's all they need to know. That makes it all worth trying for. And, you know, they may pro- be proven right, ultimately, unfortunately. But, um, but that's why, you know, this is such a um, – people are making this case for this deal of trading a massive amnesty for enforcement. I'm not sure why, we, why anything should be traded for enforcement. Why, why is there a price – to be paid for <laughs> it amazes me laws that, we should get that, <laughs> that for free yeah I, th- it should just be done because it's necessary
1: th- th- this is what i don't understand how far we moved the goalpost obama now he didn't adhere to it he lied about it but even in rhetoric he had to say no we're going to go full after the criminal aliens the whole point was to prioritize and now they're directly saying you know i mean cuz l- let me just go back to sanctuaries when we're talking about sanctuaries it's not your cleaning lady that's picked up There, I mean, it's it's usually someone who is only be the drug dealer. (laughs) It's the drug dealer. I mean, um, I promise I'll let you go go after this. I just really want to publicize this more because I thought this was phenomenal testimony that didn't get enough um coverage from even conservative media. Um, you wrote, and this is near and dear to my heart because it's heartbreaking. You know, growing up in central Maryland, Frederick used to be that beacon of serenity, a nice Western Maryland, uh, clean air, uh, nice scenery. Beautiful town, yeah. and, and, and now it's just overrun. One MS-13 click leader in Frederick, Maryland, who had received a DACA work permit and was employed as a custodian at a middle school in Frederick, this is a DACA recipient, who was recently incarcerated for various gang-related crimes, reportedly was told by gang leaders in El Salvador to take advantage of the lenient policies on UACs to bring in new recruits, knowing that they would be allowed to resettle in the area with few questions asked. Wow.
0: <laughs> yeah, all true. That's, they, they, you know, MS-13 gang members know our immigration loopholes better than most Americans do and took it. Heck, they're, they're, the gang leaders in El Salvador knew it better than most Americans do <laughs> and told them to take advantage of it. Yeah, it's bad enough that we gave DACA to a, an MS-13 member, but then he uses that legal work permit to get a job in a middle school as a custodian where he can start recruiting people in the school and also signs up to sponsor a bunch of new recruits who come over as UACs who get to go live with him um, you know, because you know, the children need to be released. Um, and in the least restrictive setting possible, it's it's a – when you create policies like that that allow you know things to happen like that, of course the criminal organizations are going to take full advantage of it. Even if they're just a minority of people taking advantage of it, we shouldn't give them that opportunity.
1: And, and then the tragic irony is, again, you're not allowed to care about Americans and our children in schools and affected by it. That That's evidently uh, taboo. But, you know – Even the – okay, the good people, again, even the good people, they're paying the drug traffickers to come over and and harming us. And uh, the poppy fields um, of the Mexican drug cartels tripled from 2013 to 2016 as a result. But, you know, all right, fine, you bring in good people. But what's so tragic is I read these stories and you look and – you know, I know some of these areas, the um, Washington Post article about um, PG County, Maryland, and the the middle school, high school there. It turns out you have – this, this 14-year-old girl who was raped, and we're told that they're fleeing violence in Honduras, oh, right. and they come here, and because we don't do it in that controlled, safe environment of, of an embassy, and we allow it to flow over the border, so even those good people, you're subjecting them to Honduras in America.
0: That's exactly right. That has happened a lot here in Massachusetts um, where these – yeah, these kids – uh, end up in the exact same environment that their parents say they were trying to get them away from. They don't want that's and, and that's why this nonsense about the chilling effect on immigrant crime reporting is such nonsense is that even the illegal immigrants don't want to live with these people either and they <laughs> don't support the sanctuary policies. They, they're not afraid of the police, they're afraid of the criminal <laughs> aliens who get released by the police.
1: Yeah, yeah, this girl didn't – she didn't speak up because she was scared of, of local law enforcement. She didn't speak up because she was scared of MS-13 that Maryland allows to fester by having these sanctuary jurisdictions. <laughs>
0: Yeah, all in the name of protecting immigrants. Uh,
1: unbelievable. Well, anyway, Jessica, I mean, I, I know I asked a half an hour and I took an hour. Um, I'm kind of like the left, you know, you you, the, you give an inch, you take a mile, but I'm <laughs> certainly, I'll take it from you any day. Um, really glad to have you on finally and looking forward to having you back again. Uh, keep fighting the good fight.
0: All right, thank you. You too.
1: All righty, folks, that was Jessica Vaughn, policy director, uh, director of policy studies at Center for Immigration Studies. Um, really deep bench of uh, just knowledge on all these issues, border and tier enforcement. We're going to be on top of this beat more for the coming weeks. But I just want you guys to know that now that we know we cannot count on government to protect us from foreign crime, much less domestic crime, I need you guys to go and sign up for a We the People holster. You go to WeThepeopleholsters.com forward slash conservative. Get 10 bucks off your first holster starting at $24. Free shipping. These are custom made. Um, I'm telling you, everything is adjustable. I love my outside the waistband VP9. Um, if I lived in a freer state, I would have an inside the waistband carry one. But all the parts are made in America. By the way, lifetime guarantee as well, ships free. Uh, They are the most quality conservative holsters in America. We the People holsters. Thank you for listening, all. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.